people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Great, hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What Podcast About the Far Right and Fascism and Anti-Fascism uh, in the UK. Or oh, we're based in the UK, but today we're talking internationally. So we have here today two really important guests. And normally, regular listeners of the show will know this is a, a kind of amateurish affair where we know nothing. And we, myself, Sam, and my co-host Alex, kind of assemble um, completely spurious guesses out of nothing. Um, today, all that changes, I'm sorry to say. Uh, we have some real experts. I've been trying to think of an analogy for how this works. So I've come up with this really absurd one. It's too long. I probably won't go in the pod, but I'm just going to say it anyway because I think it's kind of, you know, it's kind of funny. So at Stanford and the labs there, there's a place where they have um, a, they're doing experiments on plasma, right? And they're doing experiments on these uh. super, super hot plasmas. And that's like the hottest place in the universe that we know of because it's just like, it has to be so hot. And like this tiny little space, like, you know, a centimeter across, it's just like unbelievably hot. And then like just down the corridor, just down the corridor, there's another place where they're doing experiments on quantum computing. And for quantum computing, you need things to be like incredibly cold. So there's another place in the universe, which is the coldest place in the known universe, which is like literally just down the corridor from the hottest place in the known universe, both at Stanford. And that's this podcast. So there's the, the people who know the most about Turkey and the Kurdish movement and so on. And now they're very close to the people who know, the, who know almost nothing. So now I got that out of the way. Let me introduce <laughs> Dick from the internationalist Kurdish movement and Elif from the Kurdish Assembly in the UK. Um, hi guys, how you doing? Hi, doing well. Enjoyed that extended metaphor. Okay, cool. definitely staying in the pod. Okay, great. Um, so we're talking today about um, mostly about kind of the Turkish far right, Turkish fascism, and in particular in relation to the ongoing um, Kurdish struggle um, and how those two things relate, how those two things have been kind of uh, in conflict for a very, very, very long time, but how that kind of has, has, has changed over the last, say, you know, 10 years in particular. But I wanted to go really far back. So the, thinking about the Turkish far right requires like a very long history. And I just wanted to like ask what was the right place to begin this story? So there's a really kind of, there were a bunch of really obvious places, right? You could, you could potentially begin it with like somewhere in the Ottoman Empire. Or you could begin it with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire at the end of the First World War and the kind of um, transformations that happen in, in the region uh, around there. What do you think is the right place to begin the story of the Turkish far right? So the, the place to start is definitely uh, in, the, in the mid to late 19th century. Um, with the sort of long view of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Um, just for a bit of background, the Ottoman Empire uh, was a very successful tributary or feudal empire, depending how, how people prefer, prefer to frame it. Um, but over the 19th century became what was nicknamed the sick man of Europe, which essentially was a euphemism for how European capitalism was starting to dominate over the Ottoman Empire and over the lands of the Ottoman Empire and really starting to penetrate into those lands. Um, and so there were several crises that the empire experienced over, over that period uh, and different phases that it went through. Um, one was this opening called the Tanzimat period where for the first time they tried to create 
uh, an, a sense of real equality across the whole citizenship. So Christians were brought into the army for the first time. There was a constitution that was brought in. Taxation was changed. Um, uh, and then and then there was a kind of reaction to this um, with the Sultan Abdul uh, II. Um, uh, and, uh, and that became a really like Islamic vision of the empire. Um, and these were all responses to the ways in which capitalism uh, and Western imperialism were, were forcing changes on the structure of the empire. Uh, and one thing in particular started to create um, real crises, which is the way in which imperial powers in the West started to weaponize the Christians of the empire um, uh, against, against the internal structure. So, and in particular, um, uh, so this started already with the Greek war of independence, um, continued with Bulgarian wars of independence, um, and then, um, uh, moved to the, to the so-called Armenian question, uh, which, and, and, and the, the difference here with the, with the so-called Armenian question is that, uh, the Armenian inhabited regions, uh, were really in the heartlands of the empire in Anatolia. Um, and so this went back and forth until a, an event called the Young Turk Revolution. And the Young Turks initially represented one of these two solutions, which was either creating and sort of emphasizing the Islamic nature of the empire, the fact that the Sultan was also the Caliph, um, versus a kind of constitutional order, new liberal democracy. Um, and a kind of Ottomanism, Ottoman nationalism. And I think that's really important to, under, to underline, like even though they're, they're remembered as the Young Turks, initially the, the, the Young Turk revolution in 1908 was seen as, a, as an Ottoman revolution. And so lots of exiled revolutionaries, including Armenian revolutionaries, um, returned to Istanbul with this, with this event, thinking that this was an opportunity to create a federal um, empire and the Armenian Revolutionary Federation entered the Ottoman parliament at this point. Um, but with the Balkan Wars, where, um, which were in 1912 and 1913, um, uh, the Ottomans lost their last uh, main, major holdings in Europe. Um, which had been the most profitable parts of the empire, um, and uh, so so uh, at that point, the Young Turk Revolution really started going in one direction, which is to neither be this like Islamic caliphate, nor uh, a kind of liberal constitution, but to create a new idea of Turkishness, and to create the idea of a of a Turkish national entity. Um, uh, and everything that went along with that, which included getting rid of the predominantly Greek and Armenian bourgeoisie, um, which happened in the context of the First World War. Obviously, the First World War also began in the Balkans with, with Bosnia, um, and then the Armenian and the Greek genocides. And it's out of this that Mustafa Kemal comes. Um, so you really need like that long-term vision to see where, where Kemalism and where the Turkish far-right or, originates. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think Nick uh, gives quite a, uh, kind of like sets the scene for where the start of the story is. But I think one of the, I think one of the important parts of that, that history to kind of understand or um, engage with as well is, you know, when we talk about, of course, like the imperial involvement or the involvement of the imperial powers, 
what came to be the Young Turks and what came to be, um, as Nick described, like, you know, a Turkish like uh, nation. So therefore, like a nation state that was formed was also was also a model that was imported, essentially, like a model of government that was governance that was imported by uh, from Britain and France. And, you know, especially some of the late Ottoman Pashas and some of therefore the early Young Turks who were obviously kind of like greeted and hosted in Britain and in France and kind of like encouraged and uh, had the way of governance explained to them were very attracted by this one because it meant that a lot of power would get concentrated directly with them or in their hands. Um, And also what it seemed like was this strong way of governance because they could see what the British and the French were doing all across the world. So it was this very attractive, strong model of governance that then encouraged particularly the late Ottoman Pashas and the early young Turks to say, okay, this is something we would like to do here. Great. So, that, so you said that um, uh, Kemal kind of comes out of this. In, 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 what, in what sense does he, does he come out of this? Like, um, is, is uh, representing one particular strand, representing trying to transcend the difference between the two strands? Or in, in what ways is this kind of a relationship between them? Um, Perhaps Kemal, who he is as well, because sorry, yeah, people might not know. Yeah, so um, so Mustafa Kemal um, was born in Thessaloniki, Salonika, um, uh, and uh, and his house actually is the Turkish consulate there now um, that he grew up in, uh, and he was a product of the late Ottoman like army basically who joined the officer corps, uh, and he became a general, and he was the most successful general of the Ottoman army in the First World War. So Gallipoli. Uh, which was the the um, great defeat of of Churchill and particularly the Australians and the New Zealand forces um, uh, in the First World War. He was the commander at Gallipoli, uh, and so he had a lot of prestige at the um, from the First World War, which a lot of the Ottoman generals didn't have because they hadn't been as successful at all uh, in the East um, against the Russian the Russian state. Um, and so when when the First World War came to an end, uh, there was a, a, a treaty um, enforced on the Ottoman Empire, uh, which was similar to Versailles being forced on on the German on the German state. So it's important to underline here. You can see a lot of commonalities then starting to emerge in the narrative of how Kemal came about and the long term narrative of how Nazism and, and Hitler comes about out of this crisis of these of these 19th century empires um and this 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 treaty looked to preserve a sort of core rump of the ottoman state uh, under the control of the sultan but clearly like a subordinated sort of semi-colony uh, to the western powers all of the um uh, arabic majority areas kurdistan um uh, all of all of the levant um, all of those regions were were partitioned between Britain and France, um, uh, and and the, then there were uh, parts of Anatolia that were being put under French administration, British administration. Istanbul was an international city. Uh, the west coast of Asia Minor was given to Greece, like it was a real partition, uh, and that's the Treaty of Sèvres that that's called. Um, and so the mythology. 
um, is that basically what Mustafa Kemal does is start a war of liberation against this, uh, and in particular against the uh, invasion of the Greek army that had been encouraged by the British. So the Greek army was given its region around Western Asia Minor, um, what's now like the western coast of Turkey, where where people uh, go on holiday in Istmir and Antalya and those places. Um, uh, they started this march into into Anatolia for the for the Greek nationalist vision of a greater Greece that would encompass all of these regions, um, and so Mustafa Kemal started a rebellion against against this. Um, uh, brought together uh, in in the east in Erzurum um, a kind of alternative government, um, uh, and and defeated the Greek army in the process, committing lots of war crimes. It's important to say that the Greek army had also been committing lots of war crimes and crimes against humanity, but in particular, the burning of Izmir um, uh, and the completion of the kind of ethnic cleansing of Greeks from Asia Minor. Um, uh, and, but the interesting thing is that at this point, Mustafa Kemal hadn't articulated like Kemalism as this vision of Turkishness. It was all, actually all about saving the Sultanate and saving the Caliphate. And it was on this basis um, that he'd mobilized Kurdish elites on the side of this uh, of this struggle to say we're, we're, we're one group on, on Ottoman nation, Kurds and Turks and Muslims against the attacks of the Christians um, uh, and so that was that was kind of the fiction up until 1923, uh, and in 1923 they they renegotiated the the Treaty uh, of Sèvres, is the Treaty of Lausanne, um, which which among other things included the the final uh, ethnic cleansing of some Greeks. Well, actually, just Orthodox Christians. Lots of them didn't speak Greek; they only spoke Turkish, um, especially in Central Anatolia. Um, and then Greek speakers in, in on the Black Sea coast, um, about 1.5 uh, million had to leave from Turkey. And in, in it was called the Population Exchange, about 500,000 Muslims had to leave from Greece um, to create a homogenous Muslim population. And that's kind of key. Like at this point, it's still about Islam and that being the organizing thing. Um, but then this changed within a year. Uh, and maybe Elif wants to talk a bit more about that and about the Misakhi Mili. Um, I think also too, um, some, sometimes when we recall certain historic events, I think it's it's even as people who are very aware of um, you know national plans or plans uh, of empire or imperial uh, imperialist plans, I think sometimes we don't like actively acknowledge that these were quite deliberate steps in plans, for example, in building the Turkish nation state, you know, and now the current nation, Turkish nation state that you see as, you know, one language, one, um, one religion, one flag, one uh, nation, when you like are seeing this and under, as in, it's important to acknowledge that there were steps in making sure that this was achieved. You know, the first one was, and which seemed the easiest was based on religion. You know, how do we encourage, um, where does where does our initial power lie? It's, you know, trying to kind of like um, encourage this kind of like religious uh, feeling and religious rhetoric that can bring like a lot of people together. And once that's achieved, 
then the next steps comes and this is particularly the experience of many Kurds who you know of course they're not all Muslim but a majority of whom are then the steps that was very directly imposed on um, essentially the entire Kurdish nation within um, Turkish borders was uh, a denial of their of our language and of our very existence as Kurds and I think um, you know there's many historic uh, I suppose plans and agreements that also show this you know one of the but before I get to that the one of the last uh, agreements, I suppose, that the Ottoman Assembly, Ottoman National Assembly, made was this agreement called the Misaki Milli, and the Misaki Milli is uh, essentially the what it what it means is the National Pact, and it's before the Turkish state borders as we know it were created. The plan was that um, uh, the nation or the state that. Um, that is the uh, Ottoman Empire successor must look such that it includes what we now see as modern day, uh, the modern day Turkish state, but also the whole of northern Syria and parts of uh, Iraq, uh, including down to Mosul and also, well, also including uh, cities, Kurdish cities like Kirkuk. Now, the reason why this is important and it really demonstrates um, current Turkish state and therefore the current Turkish government's um, irredentist um, plans is that particularly in the last few years across Turkish media these you know Misakimili maps have been constantly spoken about and shared and there's also been reports that some schools have been using them in education as well and so therefore like you know it's I think one of the things uh, that would be important for us to explore over time is whether this was always you know a hundred year plan and this comes back on the agenda again there was some sort of back deal where um where the Turk and the, the then Turkish officials were said okay accept these borders and a hundred years later they will expire and you can get you know you can you can kind of once again uh, embark on these endeavors we don't know if these exist and obviously you know it's I think it's important to um, acknowledge that this could be the case but also of course not base our analysis on too much speculation um, so that's one of the plans one of the other historic plans is something called the Shark Islahat and that is something that is directly about Turkishness that is something that is about um, kind of making sure the the um, particularly the people who remained in what we, again, what we see as modern day Turkey were essentially in some ways, like, you know, what we would now call gaslighted into um, ma making sure that they believed that they were actually Turks and their experience of whether it was Kurdishness or any other um, kind of like uh, ethnic or religious identity was just, you know, one of like kind of going off the path temporarily. And, you know, we need to all make sure we subscribe to this Turkishness that is encouraged because that's the way it should be. And, um, and actually all Kurds are Turks, but, you know, and, you know, going on that, there's been uh, even after the foundation of the Turkish Republic, you know, social sciences from anthropology to sociology and many of these kind of like quite positivist um, 
positivist methods at like the nation state's disposal were really kind of like used in a full way to so-called scientifically quote-unquote scientifically prove that actually Kurds don't exist they're just mountain Turks and their language the way they speak this language is actually just this very barbaric and uh, vulgar way of speaking Turkish and that's why we don't understand them we basically just need to civilize them a bit more and we'll understand them and we're seeing this comeback in in kind of a similar way but also slightly differently in a way that there has been a for, there has been the Kurdish movement for 40 years now and it the movement through its like resistances its struggle and its efforts has made has made um, or created such that the existence of the Kurdish people as their own language having their own language their own identity their own uh, ethnic makeup um, as such just simply can't be denied anymore so know that now there's this new plan and of course what we're seeing around the world and I think this is the connection between methods of the particularly the far right but also uh, fascistic tendencies of nation states or states is that there are a lot of methods shared and you know particularly when it comes to fascism you know I'm sure uh, well maybe some people recall um, but one of the things uh, Hitler said was Mussolini and I are students of uh, Atatürk, Kemal Atatürk. And he said, and he said that while remarking on saying, you know, who remembers the Armenians? So fascists and the far right, really, even though sometimes there's seemingly in like contradictions between their so-called aims of what they're trying to achieve in terms of methodology, they share these methods. And we see these resurge and come back in different ways that sometimes it's difficult for us to identify that it's it's actually that quite direct and real version of fascism that's coming back. It's just coming back in a slightly different and um, disguised way. But it's up to people like us to recognize when it is coming back. And I'm sure most people, especially listening to this, will know that it really is coming back. Um, this moves us nicely onto our next question, so thanks. Um... But I think Hitler also described um, the Turks as a shining star in the 20s as well, which is kind of, there's always this tendency in, a really annoying tendency in fascist studies to like try and define an ideal type of what is the definitive fascism and then measure up different historical movements and different governments to that. And it really annoys me a lot, but I think what we can do and what, we're going to talk about next is like the actual definite connections and influences and statements that fascist Italy and Nazi Germany made about Turkey and but likewise the other way as well. Um, so Nick I think what were some of those connections and how did this kind of like relationship play out over the 20s and 30s? Yes so <clears throat> there, uh, like like Alice said there are really concrete connections that are shown by these stark quotes um, uh, from Hitler. Um, so just like, so people have a sense of the chronology in their heads, um, uh, uh, Kemal's War of Independence, so-called, um, uh, starts in 1919, um, which is two years before uh, Mussolini's um, march on Rome and, and the regeneration there. Um, and what Kemalism really represented was an attempt to complete what the Young Turks had started doing in the in the First World War in a particular direction, which is to to um, 
uh, as Elif was saying, to realize a Turkish nation state, um, uh, which, which and everything that comes along with that. So they had certain assumptions about what comes along with that, um, which means having a having a national bourgeoisie, having a national capitalist class, which identifies with that state. And so that's why the Greeks and the Armenians, even though obviously the vast majority of, of Greeks and Armenians in the Ottoman Empire weren't bourgeois, um, it was a minority of them, they were all um, uh, cleansed. Uh, and you have some, you have some really uh, uh, shockingly clinical documents with Enver Pasha, so one of the three Ottoman Pashas um, in control of the empire in the First World War, uh, uh, counting all of the properties from the Armenians and the Greeks and reapportioning them to, to families who are still dominant um, uh, in Turkey, some of, some of whom aren't aligned with AKP and MHP, but are aligned with the general Kemalist project, like the Koch family. Um, and in terms of concrete connections here, it's important to remember that who the, who the Ottomans' allies were in the war was the German Empire. And the German Empire, one of the things that happens at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century is competition between imperial powers over who gets to build railways in the different regions. And the German Empire had, had won these contracts to, to, to uh, build the railways in the Ottoman Empire. Um, so the Berlin to Istanbul and then, and then through. Which then meant that you had German engineers, German train drivers, German troops overseeing the deportation of Armenians in particular um, uh, in the in the Armenian genocide. These are the, the the fathers, the upper officials who would of the of the people who would then become the uh, uh, architects of the Holocaust a generation later. So it's really clear. In these, in these people's persons, how you have a transfer of practices and of ideas and of plans, as Elif was talking about, from the Armenian genocide uh, uh, to, the, to, the, to the Holocaust. Um, it's the first time that you have cattle trains being used to deport people just because of the ethnic and religious category that they fall into. Um, so, so, when we hear that, like that more famous um, quote, that the, the uh, uh, for who now remembers the Armenians, which Hitler is, is said in the meeting which decided on the so-called final solution, like this is the material counterpart to that quote. And then in terms of like the project, yeah, as Ella said, there's this other quote of Hitler's, um, uh, Kemal was the teacher, Mussolini his first teacher, his first student, I was his second. Um, Basically, what, what Kamal was doing in creating this nation state over the, over the 20s uh, was exactly what Hitler and Mussolini wanted to do um, uh, in their respective nation states. Um, and, it, and it came along with all of the, all of the, the practices that we, that we later see in those nation states. So the use of pseudoscience and pseudo-history, ethnic history, in order to justify... Um, uh, territorial irredentism is really clear. So a great example here is uh, initially the, the province of Hatay, where you have the city of Antakya, um, which is now within Turkish borders, wasn't initially part of Turkish borders, even from the Treaty of Lausanne. It was part of the French mandate of Syria. Um, now, Kem the Kemalist uh, nationalist ideology 
um, was that not that Turks were Central Asians, this is a later far-right ideology that comes in of pan-Turkism, um, but that Turks were, were, were autochthonous. They were, they, were, they, were always, they were the indigenous people of Anatolia going all the way back um, to the Hittites. Um, who ironically spoke Indo-European, so the languages that are related to Kurdish and Armenian, not Turkish at all, but anyway. Um, uh, and actually, Hatay, the name, the name there is probably related to the modern Armenian word for themselves, Hai. So the, 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 the like perverse um, uh, uh, way in which this is all twisted is, is, is really, um, I think, clear. And what, what Ataturk did basically was say this region in Syria, which is majority Arabic speaking, um, isn't, isn't uh, 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 an Arab land, but is part of the original Hittite empire, part of the original Hittite uh, uh, um, vision. It's Hatay. It is literally the province of Hatay. Um, and so drummed up irredentist uh, uh, feeling in over the 30s until he could get a referendum which the French capitulated to in exactly the same kind of um, appeasement strategy that was being done concurrently with Hitler um, until this province was incorporated into Turkey. And then these majority Arabic um, regions, yeah. uh, including actually also some, some exiled Armenians as well in, these, in this region, um, were brought into this new Turkification project. So like, it's really concrete what these connections were. Um, and and if you and and every every key aspect that you can point to of fascist uh, in the strict sense of like Mussolini's fascism um, uh, and and Nazi ideology, you can see mirrored earlier in the way that Kemalism was constructing um, the Turkish nation state. Um, and actually, it, it preserved a, a lot of Hitler's hope, if you can call it that, through the twenties when the Nazis were at their lowest um, points of support. And, and you, you can track this through the literal papers that the Nazis were putting out and they were holding Turkey and Turkish project up as a like an example for Germany to, to follow in that they kind of um, through they kind of uprose in a, in a violent violent revolution a rebellion and managed to like um, overturn these unjust treaties which obviously the Nazis thought the Treaty of Versailles was an unjust treaty and like you said this mirroring takes place and also this this um, what kind of struck me was like the, the almost direct borrowing. So the Kemalist um, government taking uh, fascist Italy um, policies and laws into their into just straight up adopting like the penal codes and stuff into their into their own laws, which is like quite an obvious example, I think. I have a kind of um, a question about the relationship between, on the one hand the Armenian genocide, and on the other hand, the assimilationist tendencies, um, assimilationist attempt project imposed upon the Turk, uh, upon the Kurds. So what's the difference? Wh wh why do these two things differ? So you said that there was like, um, Nick, I think you said that there was a need to, um, uh, there, there lots of Albanians and, and Greeks were killed so that there could be a national bourgeoisie, um, even though Greeks and Albanians, for the most part, obviously weren't bourgeois. What's the, what's the relationship between this um, exterminationist project and the assimilationist, or it seems like partially assimilationist project that is imposed upon the, the Kurds, or is that not the not the kind of the right way of distinguishing the two? Um, so I think maybe Elif wants to come in more on this. Like I think the basic framing that we can see is that we should recognise both of them as forms of genocide. 
um, uh, in the in the strict definition of erasing a people with their own self identification. Um, uh, and so the difference is only in the strategies um, and not even necessarily in the in the levels of violence it's just about the strategies um, Armenians uh, more or less because of the fact of being Christian um, were unassimilated couldn't be assimilated or couldn't have this project of a kind of white genocide so-called in the way um, uh, the other Muslim, or at least could be claimed as Muslim populations. So, so there's a question over over um, the Alevi, for example, in uh, Turkish, Kurdish, um, and Armenian. Actually, some um, Alevi in Central Anatolia and Kurdistan. Um, uh, they the, the 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 difference is only in in what in what you can do, and 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 we actually see that today still as well. Um, so, for example, uh, uh, in Cyprus, my, my heritage is Cypriot, in Cyprus, um, the project there is to expel the Greeks from the north and to assimilate the Turkish Cypriots and to, to erase any difference between um, Turkishness in Cyprus and Turkishness in Turkey. Um, these are two sides of the same coin. Yeah, and I think... Um... I think bringing especially Kurdish Alevis into the, the discussion of the difference in methodologies is really crucial because um, not only that throughout the Ottoman Empire that Alevis and particularly Kurdish Alevis were subjected to, you know, again, also even then, like many, um, many assimilation policies, but also massacres, there were many like resistances also throughout the Ottoman Empire, but even after the formation of the uh, Turkish Republic, the, the first the first massacres and essentially genocide attempts was um, against Kurdish Alevis in terms of like within the Kurds, of course, um, you know, after after the Armenian genocide. I think in terms of the difference, I think it's an it's an interesting way to try and make sense of it for sure. Um, but I also think it's also it's a matter of stages. You know, the first stage it was it was most crucial, and as Nick pointed out, the kind of like less likelihood of being able to assimilate Armenians uh, by virtue of them being Christian uh, into this like Turkish plan or Turkish nation state plan, which um, particularly in terms of religion, which was quite dominant, especially at, at that time, but religion in general and the way like. And people's religious expressions was was something that was quite dominant because it's also something that had been created throughout the Ottoman Empire as well. Um, it was yeah, it, it it the Armenians had to be out the way first before they could get to the Kurds, and also the Armenians getting Ar the Armenians out of the way also needed kind of you know more popular support. I think sometimes this is the kind of things that we also we also forget is throughout history, even when there was, you know, throughout history, not just, you know, not just during like Nazi Germany or whatever, when, when um, authorities or governments or states were carrying these kind of, um, these kind of, of like essentially genocide or fascist um, uh, actions out or plans out, there was always resistances, you know, it's not like, the, the then young Turks were able to do this like a piece of cake and no one like battered an eyelid. 
there, there, there's so therefore there was there was even then of course a a understanding that there was some level of popular support needed for this to be able to happen and i think we forget that sometimes is is that you know when we the, the telling of history is is even as you know like radicals like us i think even us we sometimes like tell it in an incomplete way without recognizing the resistances and the oppositions to these kind of like basic this kind of fascism that was happening um in the early 20th century for example in the case of the you know the young turks and the late ottoman um authorities so i think um yeah so i think that it's it is a matter of stages it's a it is a matter of methodology um and it's a matter of who needs to be out the way first and while we're doing that who's support or who's not even necessarily even if it's not active support who's like um uh indifference do we need or which groups indifference do we need to some degree so i think it's a matter of that um but even when that was happening it's not that the the kurdish people were having uh, having you know a picnic it was you know throughout history even when this was happening and even there was even though there was a plan of you know kind of needing either the indifference or the support of certain Kur uh, sections of kurdish society or the kurdish nation there was still this awareness that actually we may not be included in this in what is now being formed around us um so yeah uh, so i think also um you know alex what you spoke about um the treaties this like notion of um unjust treaties i think this is something that really comes to now as well you know when we talk about the akp mhp alliance and and what particularly uh the turkish government turkish state is trying to do right now led by erdogan it is with a very direct and um and public in 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 some ways of course sometimes not directly you can't really if you're if you're a leader in turkey you can't really have popular vote and be criticizing uh ataturk at the same time but there's attempts at it in terms of what erdogan alludes to is actually they the then young turks and therefore ataturk he capitulated he should not have accepted what was given to him at the time these these treaties that, that that were accepted was at the expense of Turks and they were unjust. And actually what we're going to do is try, what we're going to do is kind of rectify, the, you know, this, the, the, what happened in an unjust way. And we're going to, what we're doing, our, our efforts, our endeavors and our struggle is to achieve justice and what the Turks and the Turkish state essentially uh, rather deserve. Just an extremely quick point to say that the AKP are the Peace and Development Party and the um, uh, MHP are the Nationalist Movement Party. Um, and they're in, in a coalition government at the moment. Um, Erdogan is the leader of the AKP. Yes. Uh, Sorry, that may not be that, just may not be obvious to our listeners. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, yeah, I, I guess for us, because it's like we talk about all the time it's just like these acronyms obviously just yeah i mean i i, I, I sometimes i have this i have some conversations with this like uh, this swiss person and i'm like yeah so corbyn does this and they're like who's jeremy corbyn and they're like what <laughs> everyone knows who jeremy <laughs> corbyn is <laughs> it was an, an interesting point you made in there as well about um the stories we tell about um about history and like who gets their story told and 
maybe this is a bit of a self-crit of this episode, but like if we're just doing an episode about Turkish fascism, then we kind of miss out on like the people, peoples and movements that were have been resisting it throughout. And, you know, we're going to move on to um, kind of the invasion of Northeast Syria in a bit in this episode and talk about that. But without talking about, uh, yeah, without talking about resistances and how people like kind of try to um, survive in these situations, we kind of, I think we do miss out on quite a lot in a similar way, like when we talk about the Atlantic slave trade, if we only talk about the economics of slavery, then we don't talk about the real experiences of the people who were um, who were sold. Um, anyway, self-crit. Let's um, let's 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 steer ourselves directly back into our kind of plan. Um, so the the contemporary Turkish state. Let's let's, let's cut out everything between <laughs> 1937 and now. And um, so, wh 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 how how have these how has this project transformed in the contemporary day? You mentioned irredentist claims. It's a great word. Um, makes it sound like irregardless with a dentist somehow. Um, I don't know how that works, but the like it's it's something that it's it's a an irredentist operation is one that you have to have like it's where you pull your own teeth out or something. Um, anyway, the um, <laughs> very complicated joke that won't go in. Um, so the. <laughs> I I'm, think gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to stop and then restart. I'm going to just do the whole thing again. Okay. <laughs> um, so we're going to kind of force forward now to the contemporary Turkish state. So, um, Ella, you mentioned uh, obviously uh, irredentist um, ambitions of the uh, far right um, Turkish project throughout history. How have those manifested now? What, what does the what does the contemporary Turkish state um, want to reclaim in terms of um, territory? And also, but also, we are skipping out a lot of history because we can't do a whole history of a country and the region in this episode. But how did we get to this contemporary situation as well? Because there's obviously this, there's obviously there's been this like kind of distinction made by uh, observers, I guess, of Turkey and the Turkish situation of like there's political Islam and Islamic kind of politics, and then there's a secular uh, state, and these are kind of separate paths. And I wondered how these. How were these things interacting now and how did they get there? I mean, I think I think it's um, I think it's also a good uh, kind of uh, entry through the discussion of particularly what Erdogan sees as um, unjust um, in terms of these treaties and essentially therefore trying to achieve justice from uh, the, his perspective. I think um, I think there is a well. There's a lot of distinction made between you know the secular the secular rulers of the Turkish state and now the political Islam. And I think there's absolutely for purpose for the purposes of analysis a distinction to be made. But I think also when we when we when when we're discussing a nation state, a nation state that has. Um, quite a genocidal and fascist history which is most nation states it's also i think important to understand that the actual like fiber or the or like some of the like the characters of the nation state doesn't re hasn't really changed the personality of it it seems different in terms of who i mean what erdogan for example, sees as a priority or sees as kind of like the public talking points and and who and what he's trying to speak to. But ultimately, the character of the nation state has been quite consistent throughout history, of especially 
you know, uh, in our case, uh, when we're discussing the Turkish state, the Turkish nation state. So I think it's like important to understand that, but also, of course, understand the particularities of uh, Erdogan's political Islam project. So, you know, there's a bit of a vacuum across the region um, in terms of some strong, particularly uh, Islamic leadership. And Erdogan sees himself as being able to kind of take his like, you know, rightful place in um, essentially being the next uh, Khalif. Like that's what he sees it as. And we see this, we see this also in um, his support, especially for the last, what is it, six or seven years of uh, ISIS. There's many reports and, um, and a lot of like proof that um, especially at the height of uh, particularly the Kobane uh, resistance, ISIS fighters were able to enter into Turkey, be treated in hospitals in bordering cities, particularly in the city of Kilis, and be allowed back in to obviously continue basically killing Kurds. And we, so we see this like direct support of Erdogan, and he this is not this is not really something that's divorced from his their general irredentist and um, uh, what we, I suppose, could call like neo-imperial, um, although actually it's just imperial, um, you know, efforts. And I think, but I think one of the crucial differences, and I think one of the crucial differences and perhaps the most significant thing that didn't go to plan from the perspective of the Turkish state was the foundation of the Kurdish movement. Because when the Kurdish movement was first formed, the Kurdish freedom movement in the early 70s, um, the, the then uh, prime minister of Turkey said, you know, this is just this is just a small group of like, um, you know, basically, you know, uh, misbehaving teenagers. It's fine. It'll be over in a few days. And of course, you know, fast forward over 40 years and it absolutely is not over. And in fact, it's way bigger than anyone could have ever imagined. I, I also imagine the people themselves doing it. They always had ambitions, but it's it's gone way, uh, way bigger and beyond and further than uh, many, uh, many, many even like thought was possible. And this came from obviously like a revolutionary consistency. So what I'm trying to say is there is the irredentist um, and expansionist uh, efforts or um, endeavors of the Turkish state currently. And the only obstacle, the only uh, real and uh, kind of active obstacle against that, again, from the perspective of the Turkish state is the Kurdish movement is the Kurdish movements, but not just the Kurdish movement in a physical sense, obviously that's, that is that is very much the case, but also in an ideological sense as well. Because I think, one, again, and one of the things that sometimes we don't recognize in such a way is when particularly the neoliberal nation state projects declared that this was the end of history, that they didn't believe it was the end of history themselves. They were just trying to convince us. And unfortunately, a large sections of society were convinced that it's the end of history, even though they didn't believe it themselves. They always just, but it was, it was always an effort to pacify any kind of resistance and to say, you know what, no other alternative is possible anyway, so don't even try. While the alternatives or the or the or the development of 
these uh, nation state projects or what it could look like next was underway. And I think we see this particularly in, in the way in the way events are unfolding, particularly across uh, across uh, Mesopotamia, what we call Mesopotamia, so like Turkey, Syria, and Iraq, especially, what we see unfolding is actually no one no one really ever believed it was the end of history, and so when this alternative um, of the Kurdish movement of democratic modernity and its system democratic confederalism, which is a society base, uh, which is a society and a system based on direct democracy, ecology, and women's liberation is being developed while also obviously fighting against um, ISIS, it's seen as a big, it's, it's seen as an existential threat from the perspective of the Turkish state. But also, it's also important to understand that something seen as an existential threat by Turkey, it's not just Turkey. Turkey is the second largest NATO army. It, they, the biggest US military base outside of US soil is in the south of Turkey. So when we talk about Turkey, we're very much also talking about NATO. And so therefore, if Turkey sees this project and the obstacle that the Kurdish movement is, is creating for it as an existential threat, that means also the NATO project is also understanding it as an existential threat. So I think like it's important to have that foundation when we try and understand the shifts in power, because this is not just a matter of international relations. This is not just a matter of that. This is not just a matter of an analysis on, for example, who's going to control the next uh, big, um, big supply of oil. These are all very important pillars of what's happening, but they're not, it's inadequate to base our analysis this just on these just on these um just on these um areas and so when we see these shifts we we saw of course last um october the uh, invasion of the Turkish state of northern syria and the most unexpected thing again from the turkish state perspective from the us perspective and the nato perspective was that they what they expected was particularly the Arab tribes to the south of Syria would also rise up against the Kurdish movement and the Kurdish movement would be squashed and will be crushed uh, in between these two essentially like approaching um, approaching uh, forces. And that didn't happen. The, the people of Syria all across did not do that, said, actually, we believe in this project. And the issue was never really the project, actually. The issue was the sectarianism that constantly nation states and, and imperial powers try and kind of inject into um, society across the Middle East, but also, of course, across the world. And once that sectarianism is once you can begin or we can begin to overcome that sectarianism people start to believe in projects of obviously it's just common sense to be able to self-govern you know once that kind of like gets gets understood you're like wait why weren't we doing this all along so i think i think the strength of the project is being understood which is the only reason why the us kind of took a bit of a step back and said, hold on a minute, actually, if we were, if we continue with our original plan, which was like now they've defeated ISIS territory, let's just crush them and get on with what we wanted to do in Syria. It, it they, they would not have been able to, to you know, they, they, they would not have been able to do it in a way that people are indifferent to it around them. 
and that's that's the biggest that, that's the biggest success and victory of the Kurdish movement the resistance and the revolutionary um the revolutionary environment and atmosphere but also revolutionary culture that the Kurdish movement created um so yeah I think that kind of yeah yeah I wanted to come in um uh and and connect what uh Elif was saying about like the unity of all these projects but the like imperial um and the different forms of fascism um that the Turkish state both represents and is supporting especially in terms of Daesh uh, and connect it to what Alex was saying um uh, about the way that that secular that secularism um uh and and really like a very a very particular form of secularism, right? Like French laicism, French style laicism, where where the state dominates. It's not that it's like laissez-faire, believe what you want. It's that the state comes first before any religious identity. And then political Islam. These are normally seen as like two alternatives that that just in in that binary you can understand the entire history of modern Turkey. Um, that that's that's the sort of common liberal narrative, um, uh, and and it's and it's one that always implicitly supports Kemalism and its project as a part of that. And if there's if there's, I mean, there's a couple of things that I guess we'd want listeners to come away with. But one in particular that I would really um, uh, like listeners to come away with is a, is a kind of rejection of this. There's something to it, but it but it obscures far more um, uh, than it than it than it actually captures. Um, because actually, in terms of in terms of fascism, in terms of the Turkish far right, there is an immediate and ultimate unity between secular and Islamic fascists in Turkey, um, and that's seen in the AKP and the MHP, right? So, so a bit of a bit of the a, a bit of background um, uh, for these parties: the MHP, the National um, National Movement Party, was set up in the in the late sixties, I think, in sixty seven, but I might have that wrong, by someone called Arpaslan Turkesh, who was a Turkish Cypriot, um, uh, uh, who had moved to Turkey. Um, and it was basically a split from the CHP, which is the Republican People's Party, which is the direct continuer of, of, of Ataturk's party. Um, and basically, to, what Turkesh said is that um, that the, the CHP had, had diverted from, from Ataturk's line. It was going too far in a kind of Nasserist, like army, state, left wing kind of social democratic sort of thing, um, and it was it was departing from 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 the real Kemalist line, and so they, the the MHP was was there to to regenerate a real Kemalist line, um, and 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 maybe what people know best about the MHP, or maybe not even know that they're connected to the MHP, is the Grey Wolves, which is the the youth wing. Of the MHP um, uh, and essentially the fascist paramilitary in Turkey, um, who actually just recently have been have been banned. They've been prescribed in France um, and may also soon be prescribed in Germany, because in the context of the recent war in Karabakh um, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, the Grey Wolves started mobilizing um, Turks and Azeris. Uh, uh, in France to go on pogroms hunting for Armenians. There are really disgusting videos of them marching through French cities chanting, where are all the Armenians? Um, so the MHP, the MHP comes out of this split in Kemalism. So, you, so now you have a kind of left and a right wing Kemalism in Turkey. Um, uh, I mean, left very, very, very um, much in inverted commas. Um, 
but the interesting thing about what the MHP do is that they also depart in some key ways from what we've been talking about in terms of Kemal's own ideological constructs. So this is no longer about being the original indigenous people of Anatolia. It's now pan-Turkist. So it connects from Anatolia all the way through to, to, to Central Asia and Mongolia um, uh, and is about uh, uh, having, having, having this connection. And, and, and the ways that can concretely play out in, in terms of groups on the ground is, is the, reflected in what the Turkish and Azeri nationalists say about each other. They say they are one nation and two states. Um, the other interesting thing is that Islamism is actually a part of MHP's ideology from pretty early on. Already in the 80s, the MHP is experimenting with using um, uh, Islam as a way of shoring up people's connection to Turkishness. Um, and that's seen, that's seen in the way that the MHP, so, so um, for example, one of the things that was done in the AKP's more conciliatory phase, both with Kurds and with Armenians in the 2000s, um, was that they allowed uh, Armenian, the Armenian church to hold once a year um, uh, a liturgy in the in the um, uh, Church of the Saviour Savior on the island of Artama, um, which is in Van province in Turkey, which is a majority Kurdish area, um, but had been very Armenian and was the site of very strong resistance during the Armenian genocide. Um, and so once a year they were allowed to come. And what the MHP did was to organise in response uh, prayers in an Armenian church elsewhere in the cathedral, um, elsewhere in, in Ani, um, Muslim prayers in this thing. So you see that here, the, the so-called right-wing Kemalists are very much invested in mobilizing um, Islamism to shore up a, a, a far-right version of, of Kemal's own project. Um, if, so, so if this secular and political Islam thing refers to anything real, then what it actually refers to is the respective bases of the AKP and Kemalism in the capitalist class within Turkey. Kemalism had traditionally based itself on what's called the White Turks, which is the, the bourgeoisie in the western part of Turkey, whereas the AKP based itself on, on the so-called Anatolian Tiger or the emerging capitalist class from the more religiously conservative inner Anatolian regions, which with neoliberalism, uh, there was this new part of the capitalist class. Um, and that's what the AKP's hegemony was based on, was on this fraction. But the, the, that's not about secular and Islam then, right? It's about just struggle for hegemony and about whether it's going to be these old traditional elites like the Koch family, like the other families in, in Izmir and in Istanbul and in Ankara, or whether it's going to be these new uh, uh, inner Anatolian um, uh, capitalists who are, who are the base. Um, and, and, and you see their ultimate unity and how they've come together then in the AKP and the MHP's um, uh, alliance since 2015. Uh, and as Elif said, in, in direct response to the success of the Kurdish freedom movement and the allied democratic and revolutionary forces, um, uh, this, this alliance they've come together is directly in response to um, the historic success of the People's Democratic Party in breaking the 10% threshold. Turkey's meant to be a proportional representation system, but in order to get any representation, you have to get over 10%, which is of like the of the national vote, which is which is clearly a rigging in order to avoid Kurdish parties getting in and was brought in after a coup in 1980 as, as, the, as the law. 
Um, but even so, by creating a broad set of allied democratic and revolutionary forces, the HDP managed to break this. And so the AKP immediately um, uh, redirected and united with the MHP um, uh, and has been in alliance ever since. So I think it's really important. And, and in, interestingly, then both of them are, have been in alliance with Daesh, um, with the so-called Islamic State. So obviously that's a whole other form of fascism that needs its own episode. But, but it's important to underline that what you see here are three supposedly different forms of fascism uh, traditional far-right Kemalism from the MHP, neoliberal Islamism with the AKP, and sort of, I don't know how to call it, like death cult millenarian fascism with, with Daesh, all in fact coming together in this ultimate unity with each other, exactly as Elif said, because they need to unite against the alternative that the Kurdish freedom movement and its allied democratic forces represent. We talked about some of the reasons for the invasion that happened a year ago. Um, but maybe it's a good idea to talk about how, like, the character of that of that invasion, about how it kind of manifested on the ground, because I think it kind of is a culmination of some of the stuff we've been talking about. Yeah, I think um, what Nick just spoke about in terms of the relationship between, you know, particularly the AKP and the MHP within Turkey. I think what we saw during the uh, invasion of northern Syria over a year ago was the overflow of that alliance and what that alliance like what that what that alliance has come to into Syria and so you know that that and then you you could see of that especially and this actually this didn't just start over a year ago this started with the invasion of Afrin in 2018 so in January 2018 um for those who may not know the Kurdish city of Afrin in the northwest of Syria that um again uh important to mention was one of the it was the most stable part of syria the most stable and peaceful in a way that you know in a way that in a way that people actually being able to live there so the most stable and peaceful part of uh syria throughout the um throughout the civil war and also the uprisings the resistance the fight against isis to the point where during um during well since 2011 or 12 the population of Afrin doubled because so many especially internally displaced people felt like Afrin was the place that they could feel you know safe in and so the Turkish state uh allied with the MHP and of course like um and of course with its trained and supported uh, jihadi uh, mili uh, uh, militias invaded Afrin in 2018, and that was a long-promised invasion. In a way that it was very, it was very, uh, it it was very, it, it fit very well into the rhetoric and the narrative and the plans that Erdogan was um, uh, declaring for even many years before that. And then, of course, we saw we saw what. I, I suppose we can consider the next main phase of uh, their plan for Syria, which was uh, over a year ago in the invasion of Northeast Syria, particularly. Um, so, uh, and actually it's interesting because, and I've said this before, Erdogan is one of those fascist leaders that actually is quite transparent in what he's about to do. You know, he, before they invaded Northeast Syria, 
he got up at the uh, United Nations General Assembly and declared that he was about to do that with a map in his hand and essentially declared his plans for ethnic cleansing and went ahead and did it. So it's not like he didn't warn the world, but the world still did nothing at the time. And of course, there was preparations from the side of the Kurdish movement and the Syrian Democratic Forces in general for resistance. But preparations against the NATO army is, of course, you know, we we did see the historic resistance, particularly in Serakania. But um, but of course, ultimately, they do have, you know, NATO army particularly technology at their disposal even though on the ground uh, the on the ground battle was was definitely um very much dominated by the syrian democratic forces you know essentially because they had definitely something uh, that they were fighting for and obviously not they're not an invading force um so I think what we see in the what we've seen happen uh, from the Turkish state perspective or Turkish state side into Syria is very much a, a culmination of the alliance between the MHP and AKP, not just in an electoral sense, but also in quite a social sense, but also in a ideological sense as well. You know, the AKP and the MHP have quite successfully influenced each other for what we can call this kind of um what we can call this like green fascism which is this like political islam fascism but also this like blue turkism which is like this kind of like pan-turkist um uh idea that nick was speaking about uh, earlier on so this is a continuation of that but also uh, the attempt to uh rid the obstacle that the kurdish movement constitutes on their on their border in terms of particularly an alternative uh, project and idea but also of um of kurdish autonomy you know this is very much also in a simple way it is about kurdish autonomy and it means if it's successful there the the kurdish autonomy or the autonomy of the kurdish people in southeast turkey so in northern kurdistan is also going to be one step closer and I think this is sometimes what we what we miss, and that's why I'm really glad this conversation has happened, uh, because as particularly the fascism of the Turkish state against the Kurdish people within Turkey is very unfortunately very normalized. A lot of the people who a lot of the people who feel who feel and express solidarity with Rojava and with the Kurdish movement, a lot of the time, and you know rightly so, do it based on. Um, kind of like political ideas, political leanings and uh, ideological basis. But sometimes I feel like that's at the extent expense of, you know, solidarity with the people who in a very basic sense are struggling for their self-determination and freedom, regardless of whatever political leaning that they meet, that there may be. This is a nation that is struggling for its self-determination. And that's why I think people miss that miss the the understanding of why it's necessary and so crucial to be in solidarity with the Kurdish people struggling in uh, Turkey, so in northern Kurdistan, but also in South Kurdistan, in northern Iraq, where the Turkish state is every day as we speak building more and more military bases and therefore essentially occupying like more and more parts of South Kurdistan all the time but because the project of but because 
the project of, for example, democratic confederalism isn't for, for many people's perspectives as advanced in these areas, particularly in, uh, you know, North, like, you know, particularly in Southern Kurdistan, but also in North Kurdistan, people miss that this is also a very crucial part of the solidarity we need to be expressing. And also, I think some people miss the history of this project very much did, um, did uh, evolve and did come out of a movement that was founded in North Kurdistan. And the whether it's uh, the Komea um projects or other the other attempts of you know or the other structures within northern Kurdistan southeast Turkey of the assemblies the autonomous women structures the municipalities and so on they were able to achieve this in a very fascist environment so actually in some ways if anything's going to be like really championed on a deep level it's being able to do it while a very strong state still exists and of course, at the same time, championing and understanding the hope and the example of being able to implement it based on 40 years of organizing in northern Syria when the state withdrew. So I think making that connection between them is really crucial. And I don't think we make it enough. Yeah, I think um, so on the on the invasion uh, last year, there were kind of two th there were two things I wanted to, I wanted to add um, to what Elif was saying. One one is that um, in terms of within Syria itself, so we've spoken in this uh, episode about um, some of the key aspects of of how fascism comes about, or or the sort of different ways in which movements that we call fascist comes about with imperialism, with capitalism, and and especially with the with the just it, inherent to the form of the nation state one that that we saw particularly clearly as well and that is ever more clear because of the struggle with the with the kurdish freedom movement is patriarchy um uh, and we saw that we saw that element of it front fr front and center in the early days of the invasion last year with the targeted uh, uh assassination of hevrin khalaf um, a Syrian Kurdish uh, woman who was who was one of the co-chairs of the Future Syria Party, which is explicitly looking to build connections between all of Syria's communities and so to build what's called democratic nation, a nation which can't be reducible to the to a single identity, to a single flag, to a single state. Um, uh, and the videos, the, the videos that were purposefully leaked, and I think it's important to say this, that they're often presented as like, oh, here we get a window into what these fascists are doing on the ground in these invasions. It's not like that. It's, in, it's, it's intended to get out there and to be very visceral and to shock. And, and the, the, the criminal murder of Hevrin Khalaf um, represents the way in which these forms of fascism are looking to crush um, uh, the, 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 new life being built um first and foremost by 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 women and, and oppressed genders in the region um and i think the other thing that that the that the invasion last year represents is a kind of internationalization of turkish fascism um which is pretty new um the the for for most of the turkish republic's history in the in the 20th century with the like partial exception of hatay being being taken through referendum the turkish state wasn't really doing things beyond its borders the big change here was in Cyprus, um, uh, which was kind of forced on them by by Greek fascists attempting to unite Cyprus with with Greece. Um, uh, but 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 the, the the what they were able to achieve in Cyprus, i.e., having a having a neo colony and partitioning the island de facto, um, uh, 
opened up these new potentials that then got that then really got taken off uh, that re then really took off with the expansions into the different parts of Kurdistan uh, and now since the invasion last year what we've seen is an expansion into all different parts of the region um, and using uh, jihadist fascists um, uh, uh, from Syria as their proxy forces in all parts of the region. So this year began with the intervention in Libya um, uh, and the use of, of, of Syrian mercenaries in Libya. Um, and it's come to a close uh, with, with the, the, the war in Karabakh and the transport of, of Syrian uh, jihadists um, to Karabakh, where again, we saw the same horrible um, criminal vid videos of beheadings um, of, of people doing the Grey Wolf salute and the various Islamist salutes at the same time. Um, uh, and, and so you st we're, we're starting to see how, how Turkish fascism is, is becoming a, a force that, that, that fascists across the region can kind of mobilize behind. Um, uh, and and that this has been this has been really clearly seen in in the use of these proxy forces. Yeah, thank you. Um, that was um, incredibly uh, in, informative. Uh, thank you so much for telling us everything. I think the coldest part of the universe has now got very slightly warmer. The conditions for quantum computing have collapsed. Stanford have lost their investment, um, but at the same time. That's a the hottest back, part of the right? universe. You're doing a callback right now. That's a call. It's a callback. Yeah, yeah. And then, okay. but the same time, the hottest part of the universe has got even hotter. Anyway, um, yeah. So we've mentioned we we've collapsed quantum computing, but we've invented perpetual motion. Have you got um like if people want to like keep up with the situation, um, have there any is there any places they can like be following this stuff and get good information? Um, because I know that's probably like a deficiency of mine in that. Uh, I don't really know where to. I can I can like call I can call Nick up. And I can go, what's going on? But that's not very practical for Nick, so. Um, I think um, particularly for what's happening in Northern Syria, I think the Rojava Information Center is really is really good. It's, um, they, they're on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm not sure if they're on Facebook, I can't remember. Um, and also ANF English, there's, you can follow everything on there. Um, that's like just general what's happening everywhere, basically. Uh, but for specific Rojava stuff, um, I would say, yeah, the Rojava Information Center is quite good. I don't know. Do you have anything else to add, Nick? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Rojava Information Center, definitely. ANF English. Um, and also recently, um, uh, the, the so one of the main... Um, channels in Kurdish and Turkish is Media News, um, and a new English version of that has just been launched. Um, so that's really good, has lots of information. Um, and alongside that, the English channel of the, the youth part of the movement has also been, been launched. So that's um, called Nuce Chiwan, which is um, N-U-C-E-C-I-W-A-N. Links in the show notes, don't worry. Um, cool. Yeah, like we said, we'll put all those links in the description. And thanks for doing this interview. It was really helpful. I found it really helpful, and I, hopefully our listeners will too. I'm sure they will. Fantastic. Thank Great. you. Do you have any last, any last, any last points? Any any last kind of didn't get that in. Want to get that in? We can just edit it back into the the, the main flow of the test. No. So I, I think like one one thing is that like something to both draw hope from and also that maybe is useful in thinking about 
uh, how fascism happens is recognizing that even as Turkish fascism has been growing and expanding in its effect all, all across the region since 2015, that's at the same time a representation of how weak Erdogan's hegemony is within Turkey. Um, and, and, and that both means that the dangers now uh, are really, are really um, uh, acute because fascism tends to come about when, when ruling regimes are no longer able to lead, but are only able to rule and to dominate. They don't have a kind of cultural hegemony over, over their sphere. And so that makes it really dangerous. But it also means that there's an opening. It means that anti-fascist forces, democratic and revolutionary forces have forced them into this position where they no longer have the ability to presume consensus and to keep control. Um, and that means everything's to play for, everything's to struggle for. Um, so it's a little bit of pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Um, uh, but, but I think it's really important um, to say that, especially at the end of, a, of an episode where we talked about a lot of quite depressing things. And especially looking at the Turkish state, you can see how, a, how fascist structures can last for a very, very long time, but also how new and more beautiful and more dignified and more revolutionary forms of life and struggle can be created in the midst of all of that. That's a great note to end on. Thank you very much. Lovely. All right. Thank you, guys. 12 rules. Oh